Ad Maiorem Facebook Glorium. Footnote. Ad Maiorem De Glorium, for the greater glory of God, is the motto of the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church. The intellectual stormtroopers of that faith, the Jesuits, were behind everything from wars to defend their missions in Paraguay during the 17th century, memorably recorded in the Robert De Niro film The Mission, to the education of such luminaries and rogues as Descartes and Subcommandant Marcos. To this day, they run a global network of universities, including Georgetown, Boston College, and Fordham, and countless high schools throughout Europe, Latin America, and the United States, educating elites from Silicon Valley to Santiago de Chile. Fidel Castro and I graduated from the same Jesuit school. Castro shut down the school after seizing power, and it decamped to Miami in the 60s, and I had to write AMDG on top of many a homework assignment in my day. End footnote. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. William Shakespeare, Julius Caesar March 18, 2013 Boz was no longer the dilettante guest of the ads team, sitting in like a tourist on meetings, but the officially installed leader, Baudros, having been given the bump. He carried himself like he owned the place, which, of course, he kind of did. Boz's takeover of ads represented more than a cosmetic shift in the organizational chart. We were witnessing a complete reconfiguration of the ad space-time continuum along a single dimension from Boz Likes You to Fired. Where you were on that continuum was yet to be determined for most ads folks, and I had no idea where I fell. Presumably, to figure this out, Boz requested we have a one-on-one, -on -one, even though I didn't report to him officially. In short order, I found myself sitting across from him at a small table in a small conference room, staring at the tattoos gracing his forearms. On his right there was a figurative map of California. On his left the word Veritas encircled his wrist, truth in Latin also Harvard's motto. I had, of course, done a complete Facebook stalk going back through his time at Harvard and clear into babyhood. Thanks to the FB hashtag TBT, I had seen his idealized and mediated autobiography from rural Northern California to Harvard to Facebook. Footnote. Hashtag TBT, that is, Throwback Thursday, is a common Facebook practice wherein users post photos from long ago in their lives, often from before Facebook even existed. End footnote. I had also scoped out his management philosophy, or really his public conception of it. He clearly was one of those tough but fair types who pride themselves on directness and honesty. Truth was written on his very body, after all. For my part, outside of physics textbooks, I found truth to be a rather rare commodity, particularly in the tech world. I had also noticed that those who most made a big show of believing in truth were unusually attached to whatever well-groomed pack of lies they held dear. The conversation proceeded quickly to my role in the ads team. At Facebook, the performance review cycle was semi-annual, with every February and August bringing the usual political jockeying to make sure your biggest fans reviewed you and your biggest detractors didn't quite manage to. You're a very divisive figure, Antonio. I read the reviews of your team members and then that of management. They're completely opposed. One loves you and the other hates you. Yeah, no shit. I could imagine the feedback without having been told the specific authors. 
Reisman, Hari, and Gary and others on the FBX team all gushing praise for my dedication and product leadership. And then Gokul and Boland decrying my uncouth insubordination, smart-alecky arrogance, and corrosive criticism of current Facebook strategy. That's true, Boz. I've certainly made friends and enemies here, but my goal has always been to give Facebook the best ad system possible. This was, in all seriousness, true. I could barely remember what my life was like before Facebook, and there was a trail of destruction I had caused by spending my entire life there. Two children neglected, two different women whose worthy love I'd spurned, two boats rotting in neglect, and anything like an intellect or a life outside campus non-existent due to indifference and my dedication to the Facebook cause. Footnote. Aside from British trader, who well and truly did love me, there was the matter of Israeli psychologist. I've mostly omitted the tale here due to discretion, but during my time at Facebook, I had a passionate romance with a former professional photographer and IDF soldier turned shrink. My last year at Facebook was spent living in her tiny Palo Alto studio. The relationship buckled under the strain of work and came to a slow, agonizing end after I left. But not before numerous melodramatic breakups, relapses, and re-relapses. End footnote. Don't be deceived by my withering treatment of Facebook in this book. Inside every cynic lives a heartbroken idealist. If I'm now a mordant critic, it's because at one point, like Lucifer once being the proudest angel before the fall, I too lived and breathed for Facebook, perhaps even more than most. We moved on to the topic of the open versus closed debate that was roiling all of us. While he was equivocal on the matter, he expressed his firm intent to come to a conclusion quickly and end the uncertainty that plagued every forward-looking decision Ads was making. This was one of those Delphic portents of old, which could be read either somewhat positively or negatively, depending. Afterward, we stood up and shook hands over the small desk. The meeting had had the smell of a last meeting with the Mafia Capo before things turned ugly and he started either unleashing hitmen or making offers that couldn't be refused. I didn't like the smell of it. Not one bit. April 4th, 2013 Boz live, again, this time in live Boz. Gathered was everyone with a speaking part in the great Facebook debate of 2013. Boland, Gokul, Varghese, Boz, Scott Shapiro, and me. The stated purpose was to finally finally, hash out a final recommendation from Boz to Cheryl. Despite all the ballyhooed final meetings with Cheryl we'd had over the previous few months, we hadn't reached a conclusion. Given the bro-y decor of the Boz Man Cave, it was hardly surprising the meeting soon devolved into a male pissing match. Custom audiences is way ahead of FBX these days, Boland began. Yeah, no shit, jackass. It's me and Scott and Hari against you and the entire Facebook sales and operations organization you manage or influence, as well as the engineering teams running the targeting system and the API, all of which support custom audiences, while I have one engineer. It's a miracle FBX is still even in the running. My resentment at the unfair match aside, Boland was actually wrong, and for subtle reasons that he likely didn't understand. That's only if you count custom audience dollars as actually incremental. I think that's a stretch to say the least. What's in your custom audience revenue dashboard isn't real revenue. They should probably be discounted by half if we're doing comparisons, I countered. Boland and I locked hostile eyes, and Boz interrupted in his managerial peacekeeper role with conciliatory remarks. Here's where we really were. 
For the past few months since their respective launches in midsummer, FBX's and CA's revenues had both increased apace and were initially neck and neck. Since about December, though, and on paper, or in Facebook's revenue dashboards, which were what mattered, CA's revenue had edged out FBX's revenue significantly. The reasons for that were telling. As mentioned earlier, FBX's technical challenges were far, far greater than CA's. We were creating an entirely new ads infrastructure, while CA was merely coasting on existing Facebook targeting technology, recycling much of the targeting logic that already existed. I would know. It's what I'd spent the previous year building. Clunky though its technology was, it marked an expansion of basic functionality already inside Facebook's API and interfaces, which meant existing Facebook advertisers could easily start spending money on it. They could do so directly via Facebook's ads-buying interfaces, for which there was no FBX equivalent, or via the third-party ads-buying tools of Facebook's advertising partners, whom Facebook had pressured into supporting CA features. FBX was designed to work seamlessly with the outside ads world more accustomed to real-time exchanges, but it wasn't without its technical and adoption issues. As I've explained, FBX required deviations from the standard programmatic playbook, such as different ad formats. This required many epic hacks by the FBX team to try to wedge an entire ad system that had evolved separately into the industry standard of online retargeting. Several aggravating months and a few patents filed later, we had largely succeeded, but that convergent iteration around market needs was something for which Facebook culture had very little patience. Also, you had to understand the psychology of the advertisers and their simplistic categorizations of the world. Then, and even now, advertising budgets were allocated by channel. TV, radio, Facebook, Google, billboards, whatever almost like earmarked government handouts for one or another constituency. While the type of advertising, that is, retargeting people shopping online, was precisely the same at the abstract level via CA or FBX, spending on CA still fell under the Facebook budget. Hence, whatever agency was handling the budget could easily steer spend toward it without much fuss, both business-wise and technically. In FBX land, it was a different story. We were competing for spend with budgets that had been earmarked mostly for Google and its real-time ad exchange, AdX, which was how most retargeting was actually being done. This was good in that FBX spend was truly incremental, to use Facebook ease. That is, FBX revenue was new dollars that were not otherwise being spent on Facebook. The fact these dollars were formally being spent on much-hated Google made them even yummier, of course. Incremental spend, new money, was the holy grail for Facebook at that point. Incrementality was, in fact, the challenge of any new ads product at Facebook. Sure, your dashboard showed X million dollars in spend, but how did you know that money wouldn't have been spent on Facebook anyhow? There was no point in launching new products only to divvy up the same spend among a new set of buckets. This is why Boland's numbers were mostly bogus revenue. At most, 50 cents on the dollar was actually new money the rest coming from budgets that would have been spent on Facebook in any case. The 100% incremental nature of FBX spend was a selling point to management, but as mentioned previously, it also meant we had to convince Zappos or whomever, either directly or via our proxies, the FBX partners, to explicitly allocate spend on Facebook instead of on other real-time channels. 
Then there was the additional fact that the advertiser had to design new ad creative to run those campaigns, which meant extra work for an as-yet-unproved channel. All retailers in existence had been burned spending money on Facebook before and had fresh memories of their respective Facebook fiascos. Since most retailers lived and died by their fourth-quarter performance around the Christmas shopping season, they were disinclined to experiment with anything truly new. Accordingly, CA felt more of the big Q4 spending bump than FBX did, with the net result that FBX had fallen behind. This weakened my hand in the ongoing poker game taking place in live Boz. If I only had $1 million in spend per day to shut Boland up with, this meeting would be over very quickly, I thought. But I didn't. There was hope, though. FBX had recovered quickly given new features we'd shipped in 2013 to further ease adoption, and strong growth was back for Q1. CA, meanwhile, had started to languish again after the strong Q4. Boland's team hadn't shipped much of anything new beyond back-end tweaks that made the system less slow. Merely not totally sucking was not a very convincing sales pitch. After the initial mutual broadsides, the meeting quickly devolved into the usual inconclusive corporate ritual, with Boz reiterating his mantra that we'd come to a conclusion soon. He vowed to consult each and every one of us sitting here, and then to formulate a formal recommendation to Cheryl. Cheryl would either make a decision or let him make it. Pause and think for a moment. What's it like to be a Gokul or a Boland or a Fisher? You've seen excellent engineers and product people come and go as your recruiters land the best new grads from every leading school. Your privileged position inside a powerful and market-leading organization exposes you to every industry trend and player and pads your network with a roster of power and influence. Your ability to make any company's senior management appear and deliver fawning and revealing product demos means you know everything that's going on in your industry, down to the color of the clickable buttons in the products. And yet, there you are, lips bolted like pipe flanges onto some bigwig's ass, plodding along like an ox yoked to a grain mill, grinding the grist the big company machine requires. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because you are, without a doubt, the least daring and least innovative person at your organization, because in the opportunity-rich environment in which you live, the ambitious and capable have left to pursue it. There's a negative selection in which the cream, or whatever it is that initially rises, gets constantly skinned off, and you are what's left after years of continual skimming. Changing from big company A to big company B is cosmetic, as it's, of course, at least a lateral move, if not a step up. You learn that what matters in a big company is to avoid falling victim to firing or layoffs and to appear important and critical to the company's mission. You have mastered the art of managing up, namely controlling the feelings and perceptions of the management layer above you. You take feedback well and make sure to be seen speedily acting on that feedback. If you have reports, you champion their careers internally, make sure they know you're doing that, and try to mold them into people like yourself, who are organizationally effective and recognized as such. In all but the most pathological organizations, your report success will reflect well on you and create your own success. You make sure to form allegiances and friendships with your peer managers, particularly in organizations like sales or business development that you'll need to push your business agenda forward. 
When there's an ineffective and incompetent member in the organization, rather than calling them an idiot to their face and firing them if possible, you channel feedback to their manager and learn to work around their incompetence. If the incompetence does not directly affect you or your team, you look the other way and focus on the levers you do control. You're middle management. You're the necessary layer between the visionaries and risk-takers who created the organization and the new acolytes of your religion for whom this is a job, and you are their first whiff of corporate culture and authority. If you're cleverer than most middle managers, for example, Gokul, you'll work at building your personal brand in a way that both augments your prestige and reflects well on the organization, all in a studiously self-effacing way that allays any concerns around thinking yourself a star. Failing that, the logo on your business card is your strongest asset, and you need to bank as much on that as you can, right up to the moment you trade it for another, hopefully better one. Footnote. Gokul is currently the head of product and engineering at Square, a trendy and fast-growing payments company started and led by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. In November 2015, Square went public. Gokul had traded his logo wisely. End footnote. These were the ingredients of the toxic meeting cocktail that was being poured right there in live bars. The corporate aristocrat of Boz, the middle management lifer of Boland, and the obnoxious, shit-stirring self-assurance of the acqui-hired startup founder. It went down about as well as it sounds. April 12, 2013 The scene was the only good news conference room. We've returned to our starting point, but under very different circumstances. The cast was almost exactly the same. Gokul, Boland, Rapkin, Cheryl, and now Boz. I had played every last card. FBX development had been pushed to its absolute max, despite what little resources we had. Using either flattery or deception, we'd gotten FBX partners to spend as much money as possible on the new platform. I had tried to charm and persuade with whatever persuasive charisma had worked on investors and co-founders in the past the other members of the ads team to support a vision most of them barely understood. That was the good. On the bad side, I had been insubordinate to Gokul, more or less refusing to work on the bullshit make-work projects he'd assigned to distract me from FBX. I had been an insufferably obnoxious punk on the ads team, pushing for a contrarian agenda in a culture rapidly losing its supposed tolerance for heterodoxy. While FBX had been a qualified success, and I had received praise for doing much with very little. None of the erstwhile FBX fans in that room were now willing to stake any of their internal social capital on its future, much less on the overarching programmatic direction it represented. If Cheryl agreed to extend to FBX the data joining that was currently limited to custom audiences, or even to put mobile ads inventory, a product that would later dominate Facebook monetization, on FBX, there was a chance of pulling this off. Assuming FBX continued to grow at its current healthy rate, it would eventually dwarf custom audiences' spend in both incremental reality and what appeared in the dashboards. If Cheryl didn't agree, then it would mean the death of FBX and everything around it, the technology itself, the innovative IP we had patented, the budgets we'd secured, the work the FBX partners had done to integrate, the bigger vision of it all, gone. We were all in and betting on just one card being drawn. You want to go ahead, Boz? Cheryl gestured to Boz, who was sitting across from me. After talking to everyone concerned, including the custom audience and FBX teams, 
I think we shouldn't ship identity matching on FBX and continue with it in custom audiences only. That's my recommendation. This was going to be a short meeting. Everyone here has contributed to this discussion, right? Cheryl looked around the table. We all nodded. Well, if that's what you think, Boz, then that's what we'll do. I caught Boz's eye. He looked away. Nobody moved or spoke. After so many months of discussion, it was hard to believe that a decision had actually been made. Cheryl added finally, as if trying to snap us out of a stupor. So that's it. Nothing of custom audiences on FBX. No mobile inventory on FBX either. We'll leave it as is and keep pressing on with identity on custom audiences alone. I looked out the window at an alleyway that led to the main courtyard and the huge hack sign pointing skyward like a divine commandment. Well, I had certainly hacked. After some closing formalities that I was too distracted to register, everyone got up to leave. There was nothing left to discuss. Gokul glanced in my direction but looked away the moment our eyes met and darted out of the room. He was out of the building before I could even attempt to catch up. I wandered into the FBX area, or what was left of it. The product I had gambled my entire Facebook career on was now effectively on life support. For the second time in two years, I walked out of the office in the middle of the afternoon with nothing to do. Adios, Facebook. For every beautiful woman, there's a man tired of screwing her. Latin American proverb. April 12, 2013. Later that same day. Vesting at Facebook was quarterly, which meant that I received one-twelfth of my total equity package the 15th of every January, April, July, and October. Quit a day before a vesting day and you missed out on a quarter year of value. Join a day after a vesting date and you also missed out. It was an odd system of lumpy payment that by and large sucked, particularly when one payment was the equivalent of three years of U.S. median household income. Let a day slip, and there went a down payment on a house in a normal city. Not in San Francisco, of course. The countdown timer on my Mac's dashboard had registered exactly two years since I had joined. My next, and presumably final, vesting date was April 15th, tax day. As of today, however, I had overstayed Facebook's welcome, and as of months ago, I had overstayed my patience. It was time to go. One had to tread very carefully in these pull-out moments and make sure to mop up those last few crumbs tossed off the great Facebook table. I didn't trust Gokul further than I could throw him, and so I needed to guard against any last-minute shenanigans. Gokul had been a lukewarm supporter of FBX and me, but like every middle manager, his loyalties lay with the powers that be. Also, for all his goofy enthusiasm, he was a schemer in the end. The devil recognized his own, and there was no reason he might not try to pull the rug out from under my feet now that he didn't need me. I had left the office the moment the Cheryl meeting ended, and emailed Gokul to tell him I was taking Monday off. He couldn't fire me when I was on vacation. I wasn't sure if you vested at the start of day on a vesting date or end of day. Monday was the 15th, but 24 hours can make all the difference in the world. Best to wait until the 16th and see those shares resting quietly in my Schwab account before quitting. If I quit, it wasn't clear it would be on good terms, so it made sense to clean out the desk and accumulated detritus over the weekend. More than one Facebook employee had been ushered right on out the door as soon as they had crossed the company. 
No need for that sad scene of the departing employee packing his corporate coffee mug like a relic of a suddenly former life. I put everything into two large plastic bags, leaving nothing behind but my laptop. The kegerator, veteran of two on-site home brews and countless purchased kegs, was coming with me. I backed up my lifted Toyota Tacoma off-road truck. Beaten to hell, it looked like something the Taliban would use to storm Kabul. To the front door. I wheeled out the kegerator to no discernible alarm from security and wrestled it onto the truck's bed. So far, so good. Come Tuesday, the shares were in my Schwab account. There was nothing else to wait for, so I went into Facebook's HQ, MPK to use the corporate lingo for the Menlo Park office, one last time. There was still the issue of laptop data hygiene. Facebook IT policy was surprisingly lax, despite prohibitions on using insecure apps like Dropbox, Evernote, or even Google Apps, everyone did, including senior management. Still, such use was officially a footfault. Time to delete evidence. I started by placing every personal file and then some in secure, empty trash, effectively copying the files to unused space rather than simply unlinking them from the file directory. I then used the disk utility to write over all the free space with zeros. Why the paranoia? There was nothing even remotely incriminating on my machine. But as I had already found out, you didn't need to be at fault to be sued. For all of the pretty posters, this company didn't give a shit about me and would attempt to crush me like a bug if it saw fit. While the delete process was running, I looked at the FBX revenue dashboard one last time. The revenue dashboard. That little bitch. The collection of numbers that had ruled my life for the past year. I smiled, though. We were about to hit our second big revenue milestone, right on time. Can't say I didn't make you any money. Beep! It was Gokul on FB Messenger. Our one-on-one was scheduled for 4 p.m., and it was exactly 4.02. Are you coming to our one-on-one? This was strange. Not only was Gokul famously late to every meeting, he was typically pretty indifferent about his one-on-one meetings with subordinates. I had missed loads of them due to some pressing matter or another, and he had never reminded me of them. I switched back to the disk overwrite. 70%, 80%, 90%, done. I slammed the laptop shut and headed downstairs. There's a great scene in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, in which Tommy, played by Joe Pesci, is about to get made. Getting made meant being promoted to the pantheon of mobsters who are essentially untouchable by anyone else in the criminal underworld. It was a rare honor, one accorded only to full-blooded Italians who had worked themselves up through the mob ranks. Tommy gets to the boss's house, and there's backslapping all around and that sort of nervous patter that precedes graduations or award ceremonies. Tommy is led into the ceremony and finds an empty room. Just as it hits him that this is a setup, a bullet explodes through his forehead and he falls into a bloody heap on the floor. He had committed too many sins in the past to be made, but also knew too much to be let go. I had never been fired in my life, but I always suspected that in extreme cases, it would kind of resemble that scene. I wasn't too far off. The Tommy moment hit when I noticed some hot chick in the room with Gokul. Then it hit me. Oh shit, Gokul, you steaming little cunt. You won't even let me quit. There were few women one could call conventionally attractive at Facebook. The few there were rarely, if ever, dressed for work with their femininity on display in the form of dresses and heels. A fully turned-out member of the Duzium sex in a conference room was as clear an angel of death as a short-barreled thirty-eight special revolver. 
Gokul gave an awkward smile and bolted out the door the moment I sat down. I looked across the table. If her look was supposed to disarm me, she needed either more cleavage or more charm. I glared at her as she read through her script. We are offering a severance package. Here she switched into the false sotto voce that professional manipulators, like salesmen or politicians, use to make a cheap bid for personal intimacy. We offer this to very few employees. She slipped a contractual-looking document across the table. Non-disparagement clause, $30,000. For one year from the date of this document, you will not... Ha! I saw the game. This had a unique gokul stench all over it, like that of roadkill skunk. Knowing my penchant for hyperbolic criticism and my flair for garnering attention with a well-worded Facebook post, Gokul had decided to bribe me into silence. This additional shut-up clause would strengthen Facebook's ability to sue me should it choose to. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. Good thing I had run the disc overwrite. I pondered telling Miss HR to roll the bribe into a nice little tube and stick it up her ass. Sanity prevailed. I'll think about it. I said, and slid that paper trap back to her side of the table. The rest was HR boilerplate. Return all Facebook hardware, non-solicitation of Facebook employees, assignment of all Facebook intellectual property, yeah, yeah. The ideas I dreamed up for you and the engineers I had working for me, they're yours. For now. Walking out of the conference room, as luck would have it, the HR rep and I crossed an employee from an FBX partner company. I had indicated to Facebook ads management that we should poach her, and then had personally convinced her of the glowing opportunities at Facebook. She glanced at me nervously, and I said hi, and smiled as another HR girl escorted her to an interview room. You know, you shouldn't say goodbye to Facebook employees. That's a bad idea, said Miss HR. That's a Facebook partner employee we're poaching thanks to me, I replied sharply. Not too bright, this one. FB employees don't walk in with visitor badges and an escort. We reached my desk, which was impeccable for once, positively shining from my weekend ministrations. There was nothing on it except my laptop. Where's your laptop? Right there, I said, pointing. Where's your phone? I forgot it at home. Hmm. Where's your badge? I also forgot it at home. I, of course, hadn't forgotten anything. The badge would get me discounts at the Apple store forever, and the phone I hadn't wiped yet. She hobby-horsed nervously on her heels for a moment. The whole desk-side scene had lasted maybe 30 seconds. It felt as though she had run out of script and was waiting for a director's cue. Shall we just go, then? I offered helpfully. Weirdness spell broken, we headed back down the stairs. I think she even shook my hand on the way out. I had wanted a quick getaway, so I'd parked my redneck Porsche, a Ford Mustang GT, in the visitor spot right outside the door, next to the expectant mother spots that Cheryl had put in, and which always sat empty. Sitting, literally, about a hundred feet away from the conference room where our little Scorsese scene had unfolded, I chatted up Gokul on Facebook. Antonio Garcia Martinez, 4.25 p.m. Beat me to the punch, Gokul. I was going in there to quit. Gokul Rajaram. Are you joining another company? Antonio Garcia Martinez, 4.32 p.m. At this point, I don't join companies. I start them. Interested in investing? Smiley face. Gokul Rajaram, 5.11 p.m. Conflict. Smiley face. Footnote. This was possibly bullshit. Gokul had more ad tech investments than all the VCs in the Valley put together. 
as if in a recurring sitcom gag, I'd find Gokul's signed advisor agreements carelessly left on the communal ad's printer scanner. He had more crossed allegiances and conflicts of interest than Metternich at the Congress of Vienna. It was true that every such investment had to be passed by the Facebook Conflicts Committee, and they had total veto power. It was also possible they'd grown much more conservative and prohibitive when the company went public. Or maybe he was just flattering me. Gokul did plenty of that, too. End footnote. Antonio Garcia Martinez, 5.12 p.m. It won't be in ads, almost certainly. Gokul Rajaram. I'm excited you are starting a company. You are going to be a great entrepreneur. Antonio Garcia Martinez. Trust me, I'm done with getting people to click on ads. Gokul Rajaram, 5.13 p.m. Ah, in that case, let's chat more once things are finalized. Antonio Garcia Martinez. Sure, you don't mind if I borrow some of your engineers, right? Gokul Rajaram, 5.29 p.m. Remember the non-solicit, exclamation point, seriously. As I was having one last banter with Gokul, Boz messaged me. He'd been informed of the doing of the deed, to which he had to have consented. Of course, if he hadn't outright instigated it, I evidently hadn't charmed someone when I needed to, given the conversation during our one-on-one. -on -one. For once, the same tongue that had gotten me into trouble was unable to get me out of it. The Facebook chat with Boz was bland and stupid and not worth repeating. I'm not even sure why he bothered. I wouldn't be the only wheat stock that fell to the Boz scythe. Gogol himself would leave within two months, as would several of the remaining product managers. I fired up the car's V8, enjoyed the low growl for a moment, and peeled out of the parking lot one last time. Hanging a right leaving campus, I aimed the car's bulging nose down Bayfront Expressway. The uninhibited quarter-mile view down the highway was as irresistible as always. I floored it, cycling quickly up the gearbox, and enjoyed the ridiculously under-engineered and overpowered ride as the nose lifted and the back end started sliding. The whole bucking, shaking ensemble roared past the yuppies in their sensible Priuses and Audis down the highway and away, finally away, from Facebook. Pandemonium Lost What though the field be lost, all is not lost, the unconquerable will, and study of revenge, immortal hate, and the courage never to submit or yield. John Milton, Paradise Lost September 9th, 2013 Evenings with Reisman, my former FBX engineer and comrade-in-arms, were typically complete alcohol and rage-fueled blowouts. You ended up in either the emergency room, jail, or a Hummer limo with a platoon of sleazy chicks. The pregame was at his yuppie upscale apartment at the Paramount, which along with Nima, where he'd also eventually live, and one Rincon Hill, formed the constellation of high-rise luxury living in Soma. The tower stood out conspicuously from the surrounding cityscape of low-slung warehouses and the occasional Victorian. Entrepreneurs lived to work, and it was every startup CEO's luxury to place the office within easy walking distance of home or vice versa. Commuting was for the little people. The anarchy pump had been well-primed when the budding circus decided it was time to hit the streets and find a lounge where all the expensive theatrics of private tables and bottle service would be performed. Alex Gartrell and I linked arms and began skipping down the street like little girls, singing some ditty I can't recall. Gartrell was a big Midwesterner who'd gone to Carnegie Mellon, one of the best computer science departments in the country, on a football scholarship. 
He was an infrastructure engineer at Facebook and a regular accomplice in these urban drinking sprees. A bouncing two-man serenade on high volume, when suddenly, pop, my foot made a sound like a rope snapping under tension, and suddenly I couldn't walk. The group continued on without me, and I hobbled to a fire hydrant, where I sat my ass on the uncomfortable pointy top and waited for Israeli psychologist, who'd been lagging behind the pack, to come by and rescue me. The next day's ER visit revealed one of those depressing diagnoses of senescence. I had ruptured my plantar fascia, the connective tissue that holds your arch together, the shocks and springs of human locomotion. Sentence, eight weeks on my ass. I was two weeks into this forced, sofa-ridden stasis when some big news hit the tech world. Twitter was buying the biggest and most sophisticated real-time mobile ad exchange in the world, Mopub. I had run across Mopub before. Facebook, in that non-committal way it looked at any successful early-stage company, had kicked the tires on it two years before. I had interviewed its CEO, Jim Payne, for a product manager role. Facebook passed on Mopub, but I had been impressed. A year after that first meeting, when FBX was in high gear, I had knocked on Mopub's door more than once to talk product with Jim and his product lead, Herman Yang, back when I was still stupidly trying to convince Facebook to put its mobile inventory on FBX. Mopub knew how to run an exchange, as well as the abstruse quirks of mobile data and targeting, better than anyone else. What Twitter was up to with the Mopub acquisition was absolutely clear. It was doing what I had tried to convince Facebook to do. Coupling its social media network to a real-time exchange, this was Twitter's version of FBX. Given the jaw-dropping size of the acquisition, the leaked number was $350 million at Twitter's then stock price, this decision had to have had major management buy-in. The entire vision the FBX team and I had cooked up for how to safely expose targeting data in a real-time way, solving the entire online identity problem in one technical step, allowing advertisers unprecedented control and flexibility in ads delivery and targeting, all the while protecting Facebook's long-term strategic assets like user data and the advertiser relationship. Someone was going to actually do that. With nothing to do but sit on my ass and whine about my foot, I spent two days hammering out my thoughts on the acquisition. If I hadn't become a casualty of Reisman, the god of chaos monkeys, and his ever-present circus of hooligans, I doubt I would have had the focus. The post itself, published on Medium, that new and fashionable channel for techie thought leadership, was a smashing success. It evidently circulated internally at both Twitter and MoPub, and the heavies in the deal, like Adam Bain and Jim Payne, were retweeting it, which meant everyone down to the junior salesperson was as well. Clearly I had gotten it right. Twitter was building the super FBX with MoPub's technology. Given the sensitivity around acquisitions, plus the possibility of a Federal Trade Commission investigation around monopoly building, execs at companies in play can't comment publicly on their reasons or plans. However, they can certainly point to an effusive and insightful blog post written by an outsider, which is what they did. I spent three days on the couch giddily dealing with the social mayhem. Retweets, comments, clarifications, new follows, all the bustle and din of being a new dot on humanity's mental radar, the bright speck that always died too soon. Given this unexpected opening, it was time for a ploy. I still had Kevin Wiles and Adam Bain's email addresses from the Adgrok machinations. We hadn't spoken since I had walked out on the Adgrok deal. I assumed I was dead to everyone at Twitter. Deep Tweet had told me that Dick Costello, Twitter's CEO, 
had even sent a company-wide email at the time of the Adgrok deal, explaining away my defection as a craven character flaw. It was with some trepidation that I wrote Adam and Kevin a conciliatory email, congratulating them on the genius deal. At worst, it would be ignored. At best, it might be something else altogether. Adam responded, suggesting a meeting at Twitter. And so there I was, just two years after the Adgrok drama, checking into Twitter's new offices at 9th and Market. The company had outgrown the office on Folsom, and, after much bickering with SF's always schizophrenically inept city management, had opted to stay inside SF city limits, despite the city's threat to tax the stock options given out as compensation, like candy on Halloween. The new office was just south of that crusty asshole of the SF cityscape, the Tenderloin, with Twitter setting up shop there, and the entire attendant economy of yuppie hipster services like $5 coffee, craft beer, and expensive lofts that would no doubt arise to service it and its employees, local wags had renamed that part of the slum the Twitterloin. Who needed urban renewal or half-competent city planning when SF had IPOs? Name tag back around neck, I greeted Adam Bain's admin in the reception area and was walked to a conference room. Through the conference room window, I spied the two men I'd last spoken to when I was wooing them and their company, and was then wooed in return, only to ultimately spurn. This will be very interesting. Polite handshakes and smiles all around, Adam and Kevin sat on the other side of a round table, statutory whiteboard behind me and floor-to-ceiling glass behind them, looking out into the engineering bullpens. In one hour, I explained every technical, legal, and business problem Twitter was going to have with their MoPub acquisition. Through very little merit of my own, I was, at that moment, the world's expert in bolting a real-time ad exchange onto a social media platform with bajillions of users. Nobody knew that little niche better than me, as I had been the leader of the only team to ever attempt it. Oh, I could tell Twitter how to do this. I could recite this script from recent memory. I leapt up, took over the whiteboard, and explained the data flows from Twitter's ad system into Mopub, which were similar to the data flows from the Facebook ad system to FBX. Deduplicating human identity across devices, ads targeting without data leakage, the whole sophisticated shebang we'd created and planned while at Facebook. Clear as black marker ink on a whiteboard, everything Twitter would be betting its monetization future on, in data flow arrows and unique user IDs splayed all over a wall-sized board. I may not have been very good at politically maneuvering the scheming flunkies of Boland and Fisher, but I sure could tell you how to build ads product. By the end of my presentation, Kevin and Adam sat quietly on their side of the table taking it all in. Always show enough skin to get a second date. If in doubt, Show more. We shook hands and I was walked out to the reception area. The same pushy guard at the door made it a point to take my name tag. A few days later, Kevin emailed to propose my joining Twitter as an advisor. This was all to be sub rosa, with no public mention. If asked by the press, Twitter would have to admit I was an advisor, but otherwise, nary a word to the outside world. All it required was bi-weekly meetings with the various product managers who would be building the Twitter Mopub integration, done discreetly. While on the payroll, I was not to have a corporate ID or email address or any other official Twitter connection. I'd still be coming in the front door as a guest every time, causing a minor headache with the inefficient guards at the building's reception. Tempting, but as always, show me numbers, baby. Twitter provided them very quickly. This was not the company of two years ago that required a month to produce a term sheet. 
The pay was 1,000 shares a quarter, or about $160,000 per year, at the going pre-public $40 per share Twitter valuation. All for merely appearing at Twitter's offices every so often and conveying my thoughts on the nature of real-time ads buying. You resent that guy, and one day you are that guy, and you wonder how you got there. I had passed, in a small way, into that advisory sphere of people who were paid serious sums of money for merely showing up. There was an entire class of Silicon Valley personage who was just that and lived off nothing else. Can't beat meritocracies for the pay. There were a couple of minor hitches, though. But a few months ago, I had been a Facebook employee building exactly the same product at Twitter's biggest competitor. I was still under a non-disclosure agreement from Facebook, prohibiting the spilling of anything I had done there. Furthermore, I was an advisor and soon-to-be VP of product at Nanigans, Facebook's largest monetization partner. Nanigans was one of the big pipes that ran money into the ravenous Facebook machine, working closely with Facebook both to create new Facebook ads features and to make them available via Nanigans' sophisticated buying tools for big-budget advertisers. To the extent Facebook partnered with anyone, the relationship with Nanigans was about as close as it got. In case you're wondering, yes, this was a complete grudge job, wherein the goal was to move as much spend as possible from Facebook to other channels, a petty vindictiveness rivaling even Murthy's. My contribution at Nanigans was leading the product team that built the real-time buying tools to buy on Google and Twitter Mopub and diversified the company's offerings beyond merely Facebook. Intellectually, it was fascinating being on the other side of the buy-sell equation, actually building buying technology to talk to the real-time selling technology I had built. The real motivation, though, was returning those dollars I had originally moved from Google to Facebook, thanks to FBX, right back to Google, thanks to Nanigans, and its roster of deep-pocketed advertisers, now being able to buy ads anywhere. On ne détruit que réellement que ce qu'on remplace. Footnote. One really destroys only what one replaces. The author is Napoleon III on overthrowing the Second French Republic and replacing it with the Second French Empire. End footnote. Given all the crossed allegiances, going from the Facebook family to the Twitter one, while nominally staying inside the Facebook one at Nanigans, was no small step, and nobody in this picture, neither Facebook nor Nanigans, was bound to be very happy about it. What Twitter was asking was just shy of a breach of confidentiality and absolute corporate treason. Just shy, which was how Silicon Valley worked. I signed the offer without negotiation and emailed Kevin Weil to convey my eagerness to get started with Twitter. He reciprocated that excitement and suggested a time to meet with the Twitter ads product team. I was working for Twitter now, against Facebook's interests, two years after very insultingly doing the opposite. At the same time, I was also working for Facebook's largest ads partner and biggest single pipe of cash. The land of the stateless machines, indeed. Epilogue Man plans and God laughs. Oft expectation fails, and most oft there, where most it promises. William Shakespeare, All's Well That Ends Well. January 2016. So what became of it all? The great Facebook ads debate of 2013 ended up being moot, or at least a debate whose import would be more strategic and long-term than tactical and immediate. 
for all the sturm and drang, Facebook's quarter-saving gold mine, the thing that catalyzed the stock out of the post-IPO doldrums, wasn't custom audiences or FBX. A third product, the only other novel ads product Facebook launched during its harried IPO period, codenamed Nico, was that savior. The product itself, like so many, was simply the combination of two otherwise disparate domains. Facebook's ever-addictive news feed and ads inventory on the Facebook mobile app instead of the desktop site. That's it. Ads in the news feed while the user was on his or her mobile device. That's what saved Facebook. The person most responsible for this coup was a product manager with the improbable name of Fiji Simo. She was one of two office wives of mine, yes, I was an office Mormon, who had started her career in Facebook ads as a lowly product marketer. Footnote. Fiji Simo also practiced office polyandry. Rather notoriously, she'd befriend whoever was on the political ascendant inside Facebook, very publicly spending time with that person socially, all documented on Facebook, of course. Like some sort of social canary in a coal mine, her momentary social circle always revealed who was important inside ads right then. End footnote. She had very quickly and skillfully navigated herself up the Facebook corporate ladder, landing herself the product manager job where ads and the rest of the company overlapped, placing herself in the larger Facebook and Zuck spotlight. She was half Sicilian, half French. The latter meant black, tailored dresses and heels as high as bar stools. The former meant a formidable political ability, evolved through centuries of clannish Sicilian feuding, perfectly adapted for Facebook's management culture. Like many successful products, newsfeed ads rode to success atop a tsunami-esque wave nobody had predicted, or at least hadn't predicted to arrive right then and so quickly. In this case, that wave was mobile usage, which in the span of a few months in 2013 suddenly constituted the majority of Facebook usage. This was a turn of events that completely upended Facebook's monetization strategy, making everything that came before mostly irrelevant, or at least secondary. In retrospect, it's clear to see why Facebook succeeded on mobile. For starters, data. On desktop, the browser and its cookie pool, that even third parties like data brokers and even Facebook can read from and write to, mean there's a lot of data sloshing around for every web browser. The fact you're pricing your car on the Kelly Blue Book site or searching movie times on Fandango is something that's known not just to Fandango or Kelly, but to an entire world of data brokers and targeters. In mobile, web browsers generally don't accept third-party cookies, which means that someone other than the New York Times can't read or write data about you when you're on nytimes.com on your mobile browser. Contrast that to the data mayhem that reigns on a desktop browser. Also, that mobile browser typically does not have access to your unique device ID, which, as we'll see, is the real identifier that matters in the mobile advertising world. Second, the triumph of apps as the core mobile experience. Think of it this way. From the data perspective, if not the technical one, an app is like a unique browser for a specific company, which that company has built so you can experience its very particular website. You effectively have hundreds of unique browsers on your phone, with which you read content and buy goods or services. Again, compare that with desktop, where you have Chrome or Safari, or one of a handful of browsers, with which you browse thousands of sites, and all the data sloshes together across your browser's cookie pool, getting siphoned off and resold in a bajillion ways. In mobile apps, that data mosh pit doesn't exist, as all the data is siloed within the app that generated it. 
If you've gotten to level 47 in Candy Crush Saga, searched for a house on the Redfin Real Estate app, or bought something on Amazon's mobile commerce app, that data lives and dies inside those apps and never leaves. This means that on mobile, at least data-wise, you have a first-party relationship with a few apps, and that's it. There are no data middlemen. This is actually counterintuitive if you know how mobile data is stored. On mobile, every device has a unique ID that's associated with the physical hardware you're holding in your hand. Footnote. Since purists will no doubt squirm at this simplification, a clarification. Strictly speaking, the device ID, called an IDFA or ID for advertising in the Apple world, is actually a software-generated string of letters and numbers. For example, 236A00005B-700F-4889-B9CE-999EAB2B605D. That's associated with your phone and common across all apps you run. Historically, it was an immutable physical parameter, but that changed in 2012 when privacy concerns mounted. It is now software-generated in order to allow you to opt out of advertising by changing it. For all intents and purposes, though, it's almost a serial number stamped on the circuit board of your phone. End footnote. In theory, marketers could sell all that data, associating it with your device ID, and then use it to target you on Facebook or on mobile ad exchanges. That doesn't happen for two reasons. First, companies like Apple have monopolistic control of their platforms, and as part of the app approval process that allows a new app into Apple's App Store, Apple can limit the use of this magical device ID. Footnote. On submission, Apple reviews what the app actually does and what functions it calls, including the one that gets the device's IDFA. If you seem to be using it in unacceptable ways, Apple's rules are intentionally vague and their interpretation a subject of almost Talmudic debate, then your app is rejected, often for unclear reasons. This is one of those rare choke points in modern technology where one player simply rules by erratic diktat. End footnote. In general, Apple has shown itself very protective of users. Steve Jobs was famously indifferent, to not say antagonistic, to advertising, and very keen on foiling any secondary market in targeting data. Second, app developers themselves jealously guard their data as their own, are reluctant to share it, and would rather monetize its power themselves rather than pursue the short-term upside of selling it, potentially to competitors. The net of all this detailed data discussion is this. While my statements about the questionable value of Facebook data held true on desktop, which already had a mature and mostly respectable data marketplace by the time Facebook showed up peddling likes, that was emphatically not the case on mobile. On mobile, targeting data was sparse and bad when it did exist, such that even basic targeting like age and gender was a godsend to data-starved mobile marketers who'd been mostly shooting in the dark. This was confirmed in a big way when Facebook launched the only true novel thing it's launched since the IPO, the Facebook Audience Network. AN, as it's known, is easy to understand. It's simply Facebook ads powered by Facebook data running on apps other than Facebook. As such, it's the cleanest test of the value of Facebook's data. The performance of those campaigns, in terms of both click-through rates for advertisers and actual monetized CPM for publishers, was very good, indicating that in the land of the mobile data blind, the one-eyed Facebook man was indeed king. Here's the second macro reason why Facebook has triumphed on mobile, which once again highlights the deep structural differences between the desktop and mobile worlds. 
On desktop, even leading publishers like the New York Times had trouble monetizing their web presence and constantly experimented with various paywall schemes in order to stem their hemorrhaging bottom lines by monetizing the sudden rush from print to digital. As a result, top-quality publishers often used advertising as a crutch to help monetize the digital presence whose business model they hadn't figured out. For advertisers, that meant ads inventory on even prestige publishers like Vanity Fair and the New York Times was readily available. In mobile, leading app publishers, mostly games companies and a few mobile commerce companies, were adept at monetizing their users by banking both on the gatekeeping and on the ease of payment the app store represented. For example, $3.99 to download, beat it if you don't like it, as well as a general culture of savvy monetization. The newspaper people turned digital publishers were still rubbing the newsprint off their hands as they tried to figure out this internet thing, while the marketers inside leading games companies knew their CACs and LTVs out to three decimals. Footnote. CAC is customer acquisition cost and LTV is lifetime value. The former is the marketing cost of getting a user to download and log into your app. The latter is the amount of revenue you'll make on a given user over the lifetime of his or her usage. If the ratio of LTV to CAC is greater than 1, you're succeeding as an app publisher, since the money coming in is greater than the money going out, ignoring development and server costs for a moment and assuming this lifetime isn't too long. Any app marketer should know these two numbers better than their kids' names. And footnote. As a result, the only mobile apps that used advertising to monetize were the long tail of free, crappy games that couldn't convince users to pay up, or second-tier social media networks that outsourced their monetization to existing networks and exchanges. As an example, for a long while, and probably still, the biggest source of ads inventory on the most respectable mobile ad exchanges was Grindr, the gay hookup app that features endless selfies of half-naked men mugging for casual sex. Want to run your ad for a new tooth whitener underneath the image of a steroid-abusing meathead tugging at his semi-tumescent phallus? I thought not. Also, as you've likely noticed, the ad formats on mobile are either tiny and subtly invasive, for example those small blinking bars bordering the lower edge of the screen impeding your scrolling, or large and annoying, for example the whole screen takeovers called interstitials. All this meant that while on desktop, high-quality publishers with engaging formats competed with Facebook, on mobile, the pickings were very slim indeed. Non-intrusive but stylish ads, which paired well with organic content from your friends, on an app experience like Facebook, which featured supremely focused attention and a crazy high engagement rate. Click-through rates on Facebook's news feed reached easily into the single-digit percentages, were very competitive with the mobile alternatives. This meant Facebook had the mobile advantage from the get-go. Those two things, data and high-quality formats and placements, meant that Facebook dominated mobile like few other incumbents had managed to and would dominate for the foreseeable future. Of course, it's easy to say all this now, retrospectively. It certainly was not clear in the spring of 2013, when the open versus closed debate was reaching its clamorous apex and all avenues for future revenue growth were being heatedly debated. It wasn't clear even after the mobile tsunami started. When Facebook reported its second quarter results in June 2013, two facts triggered a market rally in FB shares. First, the number of active users on mobile had increased by more than 50% from the previous year. Second, and more important, revenues from mobile had roughly doubled from the previous year.
This indicated that Facebook was not only successfully making the much presaged leap to mobile, whereby all online activity was thought to be moving to devices, it was also managing to monetize there, meaning the leap wouldn't damage revenues. What was really going on? Facebook was slowly opening up its mobile news feed to ads, putting on the auction block what was a formerly untouched piece of Facebook property. As 2013 ground on, Facebook turned its monetization knob gradually, opening more and more inventory for ads, and bringing in steadily more revenue, beating expectations at every earnings call, and guiding the stock price ever higher. Ad inventory is like real estate, and what Facebook was doing was akin to the westward expansion of the United States following the Louisiana Purchase, a one-time land rush bonanza that featured hardy pioneers racing into the sunset under the nominal control of an organizing government. Multiple insiders at the time leaked to me the concern around the strategy. Pimping out newsfeed had to end at some point, and then what would Facebook do? There were even internal projections guesstimating when the moment would arrive, when the ads pioneers would reach the Pacific Ocean on the westward fringe of this new ads continent and realize that the land rush and the revenue boom were over. But again, the unexpected happened. Facebook revenue didn't stop growing even after ads had well and truly penetrated the average user's mobile experience. Given the excellent performance, increasing advertiser budgets drove demand for what was now a relatively limited commodity. Facebook, using some of the data it was now ingesting via custom audiences and other products, was getting better and better at optimizing ads delivery on mobile, driving revenue gains based on pure mathematics alone. Sensing which way its future was trending, Facebook re-geared the entire ads team to focus on mobile, squeezing every advertiser, big and small, to spend as much as possible on Facebook mobile ads. It was one of those instantaneous pivots that were breathtaking in their speed and focus, with an agility that had saved Facebook more than once in the past, and of which the company could be justly proud. Not many public companies of that size, if any, could have pulled off such a sudden course change. Even after the sudden rise of an almost pure mobile Facebook, and even after that new continent of pixel real estate was sold to the highest bidder, Facebook revenue continued growing, pleasing investors and driving the stock ever higher. None of this, of course, was even remotely apparent in early 2013, despite whatever Facebook claims now, when the ego-pissing matches in Cheryl's conference room depicted in this book were raging. That's the nature of Valley success, however. You try ten things based mostly on random hunches, a few key product insights, and whatever internal mythologies your culture reveres. Seven of them fail miserably, are discontinued, and are soon quietly swept under the rug of forever today forgetfulness. Two do okay, for more or less the reasons you thought, but they don't blow the doors off your success metric. And one, for reasons you discover only after the fact, becomes a huge transformational success. The amnesiac tech press weaves the narrative fallacy around the proceedings, fabricating a make-believe dramatic arc from steely-eyed product ideation to flawless and unhesitating technical execution. What was an improbable bonanza at the hands of the flailing half-blind becomes the inevitable coup of the assured visionary. The world crowns you a genius, and you start acting like one. When the next usage or revenue crisis hits, you repeat the experiment, rolling your set of product dice on the big valley table. At some point, you don't find the crisis-solving winner. The dealer sweeps up your remaining chips, and you're busted. The company fails, and your logo is recycled as a reminder of corporate mortality. 
and everyone wonders how such a confirmed genius could have possibly failed and ruminates on the transience of talent. That day will arrive for Facebook, too. In some ways, it already has. Facebook just bought its way out of it. In 2012, a photo-sharing app called Instagram was able to show Zuckerberg something he'd never seen before, a user growth curve relentlessly up and to the right that resembled Facebook's own meteoric early growth. After negotiations spanning all of a weekend, Facebook snapped it up for $1 billion, thwarting Twitter's own Jack Dorsey, who had reputedly been wooing Instagram CEO Kevin Systrom for months. In 2014, another app could boast a similarly fear-inducing growth curve and with an even higher number of users. WhatsApp, little known in the United States, but practically synonymous with texting and SMS overseas, had made an international empire out of a relatively small team and a very basic app whose unique offering was making your phone number your user identity. Footnote. This was a twofold act of semi-accidental genius. First, it completely outsourced the issue of security and user operations. For example, flagging fake users who send spam, getting authentic users their forgotten passwords, to the carriers, for example, AT&T, who establish and maintain the human-to-phone number mapping as part of their business. Second, it meant the growth team's ever-present task of getting users to connect to other users was rendered trivial. Simply hoover in the contact list on a user's phone, and that person has instantly friended everyone he or she knows. None of this Facebook business of prodding you via pseudo-ads to friend your long-lost classmate. Reportedly, the reason for spurning the usual made-up app identity of a username-password combo for WhatsApp was due to its founder and CEO, John Coombe, constantly losing his Skype password and wanting to do away with a login process altogether. End footnote. As with Instagram, Zuck put on his game face and wooed WhatsApp's founding CEO, John Coombe, acquiring the company for the eye-popping amount of $19 billion in October 2014. Footnote. In a bit of feel-good valley news that soon became folklore, John Coombe signed the multi-billion dollar deals documents on the door of the welfare office his family would frequent for food stamps after they immigrated from the Ukraine. It's these anecdotal stories that warm the techno-libertarians' heart and anoint their brand of tooth-and-nail capitalism, almost de rigueur in the valley, with the mark of a righteous meritocracy. End footnote. The two apps, one for hipsterish, color-filtered photo-sharing, the other for mundane texting in price-sensitive markets where SMS was expensive, were the sort of altogether new market directions that big companies tended to miss. WhatsApp and Instagram sold out, but the day will arrive when the leader of a globe-spanning app, the new paradigm in how Homo sapiens sapiens communicates via electrons and radio waves, proves as obdurate and proud as Zuckerberg himself. Then Facebook won't be able to buy its way out of trouble, and it will have to build its way out instead, a far riskier proposition. What about FBX, our baby in this drama? FBX's revenue, which was just starting to show signs of explosive growth toward the end of my Facebook sentence, hit its stride in the months after I departed, reaching about a half billion in revenue by early 2014, all of that absolutely new revenue. Footnote. Or so it was leaked to me. Modeling FBX's size based on the growth of Facebook's ad system, where client budgets were going, sampling what fraction of feed posts were FBX-related, and so forth, one arrives at about the same number. End footnote. If that number is correct, and it can't be far off, then FBX was one of the fastest-growing revenue products in Facebook history, 
second only to the much larger billion-dollar newsfeed bonanza described above. And it was built with four people at its peak of development, while newsfeed ads required a small army to create and maintain. My little boy had all grown up despite his harsh childhood and had become a contributing member of Facebook society. Its future is bleak, though. The lack of mobile inventory on the exchange, one of the proposals shot down by Boz and Cheryl in that last funerary meeting, means that FBX is slowly being starved as more and more of Facebook becomes mobile only and its revenue must surely be cratering by now. Unless Facebook offers mobile inventory on FBX, the day will come when a Facebook PR piece, a true product obituary, announces FBX's looming shutdown. That said, and I'm stating this now only so I can throw it in their faces later, eventually Facebook will have to fully support a programmatic exchange for all Facebook inventory. Facebook is on the wrong side of technological history, and there's simply no way the Facebook ads platform will be stuck in the equivalent of 2007 forever. The real-time interaction of human desire with online capitalism is here to stay. Heck, even Wall Street has seen the light. Remember how we described a post-crisis Goldman considering but rejecting the notion of trading credit default swaps on exchanges, the inevitable evolution of that derivatives market? In 2013, Goldman finally partnered with the Intercontinental Exchange, ICE or ICE, a pioneering electronic exchange trading everything from jet fuel to orange juice to clear trades on European credit default swaps via ICE for Goldman's clients. Perhaps Facebook will one day show itself to be as much of a leader and innovator as Goldman Sachs. What if Facebook's great enemy, Google, and its encroaching social network copy, Google Plus? Carthage must be destroyed, and all the rest of it? By April 2014, the Google-Facebook Punic War was over. Zuck wouldn't burn Google to the ground, take the wives and children of Google employees as slaves, and salt the grounds of the former Google headquarters so that nothing grow there for generations, as Rome did Carthage. But it was about as ignominious a defeat as one got in the tech world. Google signaled its capitulation when the face of Google+, Plus, Vic Gundrota, suddenly announced he was leaving the company. There was a ding-dong-the-witch-is-dead note of triumph inside Facebook, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief at the passing threat. Vic's departure was as clear a sign as any that Google had given up on social, accepting defeat at the hands of a company it had previously ignored, if not held in outright contempt. This was only confirmed when it was simultaneously announced that many Google Plus product teams, such as the chat app Hangouts or the photo-sharing app Photos, would be rolled into the Android team, Google's mobile operating system. Google spun it as Google Plus becoming not a product, but a platform, a sort of general use tool that would enhance the user experience across Google's wide array of products. This was like a general declaring that their army wasn't in retreat, but merely advancing in reverse instead. Everyone at Facebook saw through the face-saving PR wordplay. Google Plus was over. Facebook had won. The lockdown circling of the wagons had triumphed. Enough of the blue hoodie people. What about the Twitter flock? In January 2016, as this book was being finished, Twitter had another of the high-level management shakeups, like palace putches of some eastern despotism, for which it's somewhat famous. Kevin Weil and Alex Roeder, our initial contacts in the Adgrok deal, who rose to run those twin company engines of engineering and product, left Twitter at once, along with some other senior executives. Somewhat shockingly, Weil left the head product at Instagram, a Facebook company in clear competition with Twitter, whose usage numbers were dangerously plateauing by then. 
Adam Bain remains as COO at Twitter, and Jess, the woman who started the whole AdGrok drama, continues to run corporate development at Twitter, buying companies and people like so many canned tomatoes. The stateless machines of Silicon Valley keep on turning. What of the former AdGrok crew? As of March 2016, the boys were still engineers at Twitter, having more than vested their four-year offer. Given the offer numbers, the fact that it was in favorably taxed options, the fact that Twitter reached over $50 a share well after the IPO lockout period, and bonus equity top-ups they'd have received as high-performing employees, their final score was very rich indeed. MRM would have no trouble paying off his mortgage, no longer worry about his kids' college, and finally live the life of ease his previous two decades in tech had not afforded him. Argiris, for his part, could have that cafe and record store fantasy in Athens if he wanted it, and much more. Simlin, he, would soon have a child, buy apartments in both San Francisco and Athens, and generally live the life of the San Francisco techie privileged. We're still on speaking terms, more or less. Argiris and I more than MRM, but that's hardly surprising from what you've read. They've managed to forgive whatever slight they felt at the deal drama I created. After all, it worked out very well for them in the end. And my outcome? Practically nothing by comparison. Recall, the Facebook offer was in restricted stock, which is taxed as common income. Also recall, Facebook's IPO, unlike Twitter's, came out at a high price of $38 and then languished for a year around $30, occasionally going so low as $18. That IPO was great for employees and insiders worried about dilution, but not for people wanting to cash out, like me, and walk away from the Silicon Valley casino. With the lockout, insiders weren't able to sell the stock until months after the IPO, when FB was at $20. Thus, I owed taxes at the maximum marginal tax rate, plus whopping California state income tax, assuming a cost basis of $38, when I had really sold at lower, effectively paying taxes on money I hadn't made. In a smaller way, mine was the plight of the first tech boom bankruptcies who paid taxes when prices were dear, but sold stock when prices were cheap. I saw relatively little of my ersatz agrock proceeds in the form of Facebook stock. All of that three-year struggle of endless 16-hour days, whether for agrock or for Facebook, and hating most of it, as if you couldn't tell, was mostly for nothing. So you see, the boys and I have very different financial futures awaiting us. Some of it was due to the detailed vagaries of tech compensation and the random walks of public stock prices. Mostly, though, it was due to my getting chewed up and spit out by the Facebook machine within two years, while the boys gambled in the bucolic hipster pastures of Twitter for four years and counting, the very pastures I struggled and plotted mightily to avoid, and which I traded for the horror show that would thanklessly reject me despite the moneymaker I'd built them. Who says karma doesn't exist? Speaking of unjust karma, life soon took a turn, without which you wouldn't be reading this book. In the summer of 2014, my mother was unexpectedly diagnosed with liver cancer, and I watched her, slowly at first and then very suddenly, die. A breeze from the grave suddenly blew across dreams of youth, which lay caked in the patient dust of someday, and made them gleam again with their original brilliance. I withdrew from any professional obligations, sold everything, and committed to two all-consuming goals. First, to finish the book you were holding, whose initial scribbles dated back to the events described, but whose completion required a year of itinerant writing and editing. Second, to sail around the world alone on a small boat. This was a dream cultivated since childhood, 
when I raced my Optimus dinghy in Biscayne Bay by day and read of Robin Lee Graham's adventures on Dove by night. Graham was an American sailor whose solo circumnavigation in 1970 on a cramped 24-foot boat named Dove made him the youngest person to ever complete such an ocean passage. To that end, when I had finally scraped the bare minimum amount of money together, I fitted out two boats, one after another, for such a voyage, and then in turn negligently let them rot at the dock during the events described in this book, one during Adgrock and the other during Facebook. Those boats were in turn sold, as much to hide my embarrassment at the neglect of both ship and personal ambition as to recoup costs. Shortly before my mother's death, I purchased a stout 40-foot cutter-rigged sailboat. That vessel, like my daughter, named Ayala after the first European to enter San Francisco Bay, will not suffer the same fate. Through 2015, I spent marathon writing sessions hunched over a screen, alternated with dusty days splayed on the deck of Ayala, installing or fixing one or another piece of overpriced marine hardware. To quote Theodore Herzl, If you will it, it is no dream. And if you do not will it, a dream it will remain. Willing dreams into existence was what being an entrepreneur and a product manager was about. For once, finally, they'd be my dreams rather than purely corporate or mercenary ones. Thus do I bow off this stumbled-upon stage, hopefully forever, and disappear into the heaving swells of the Pacific Ocean, the only such sanctuary from social mediation we'll soon have left. Orcas Island, Washington.